Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we were joined once again by Dr. Colin Scheman for a masterclass on paraesophageal hernias. Dr. Scheman is a previous guest on the podcast and is a thoracic surgeon in Calgary. In this episode, we discuss types of paraesophageal hernias, the management of gastric volvulus, as well as operative approaches to repair. Maybe we should start uh, right at the beginning with with what I think a lot of general surgeons uh, you know, see day-to-day incidentally and, and less commonly symptomatic, but wondering how you frame the topic of parasophageal hernia, uh, how common it is, how often it's symptomatic, and, and how it generally sort of flows through a referral process. For sure. So um, I guess just before I, before I start, I would just say um, I'm a thoracic surgeon, and so I do find that thoracic surgeons and general surgeons think slightly differently of this problem, although not hugely. Um, and I, I'm, in addition to that, I would say that not there's quite a bit of sort of personal touch in how people think about these problems. So I, I suspect not everybody will agree with what I'm going to say, but um, that some parts of this are a bit more opinion heavy than others. And so, I mean, basically. <laughs> As you've said, Chad, these are these are common problems. Um, if you look closely for them, you see them in a lot of, of imaging studies done for other reasons. Um, and so, uh, there's a lot of, of, of patients diagnosed with hiatal hernias or parasophageal hernias. Um, we don't know the exact sort of societal incidence, but there's an interesting study that showed that up to 25% of CT scans done for other reasons will show some element of a hiatal hernia. Obviously, the vast majority of those are going to be not symptomatic. Um, and so we see quite a few of them, incidentally. Um, and then I think another element, even just to sort of frame the discussion that gets confusing, is how do you describe them and classify them? And so, I, you know, the words hiatal hernia, parasophageal hernia, and gastric volvulus often get used interchangeably or, or are related. And so just to start the discussion, I think it's helpful to um, just explain how I think about them. Um, So hiatal hernias and parasophageal hernias sort of represent a spectrum of the same problem with gastric volvulus typically resulting from larger parasophageal hernias as the stomach migrates up, often flips around on itself. And so um, they all involve some migration upwards uh, through the diaphragmatic hiatus into the lower mediastinum. Um, classically, we talk about the four types. I'm not sure how critical that is for our discussion today, but, but I think just to frame some of how I think about it, the, the, the sliding hernias of the type ones or the small ones are the, are by far the most common. Those are about 85%. And those are the ones that are often sort of affiliated with reflux disease. Whereas when I think of the word parasophageal hernia, which is, I think what, what we're going to mostly chat about today. Um, those are kind of the types twos, threes, and fours, which are bigger, and they make up about 15% of the hiatal hernias. Um, as you, you know, the fours are the ones with other organs herniated through, 
Um, the type threes are probably the most common ones we see with migration of the, the GE junction in the stomach. And the type twos are this sort of rare entity where the, the fundus migrates, but the GE junction stays where it's supposed to. Um, and then um, just to, to set the stage, we, we often see them in, in elderly female patients, sometimes which uh, they tend to be seen in, in patients who are more obese. And so it is, it is largely a disease of elderly patients, although we, we absolutely have younger patients. We operated on a patient in their thirties this week that had one, um, but that would be the prototypical patient. Um, and I think it's important to really differentiate them from patients that have had previous hiatal surgery. That in my brain is a completely different sort of challenging problem. So if they've had previous hernias or other esophageal problems, but anyways, I'll stop there. It's funny how many surgical diseases we treat every day, but don't really have a good sense of the pathophysiology behind them. You know, can you talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of parasophageal hernias? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I almost think about that in reverse. Like I know that the common features are this laxity of uh, the so-called phrenoesophageal ligaments or, or attachments where the, the esophagus and fundus kind of traverse through the diaphragm. And, and for whatever reason, in these patients, they get dilation of that diaphragmatic hiatus. And then uh, we think partly because of negative you know so-called negative intrathoracic pressure which we generate as part of a respiratory cycle you get this upward kind of pulling or migration force caudally and, and that kind of draws uh, the fundus and, and the ge junction upwards and you get this elongation of that sort of peritoneal envelope and the sac begins to develop and so but but honestly we don't really know why people get them. There's not a, an etiologic risk factor other than just some of the, as I said, some of the correlated features or associated features uh, that we talked about. Right. So you talked uh, about the types. How do you, and, and the fact that a lot of these get picked up asymptomatically on, on other imaging. Um, how do these patients, if they do have issues, what are the kinds of issues that you typically see? Like when you're you're seeing them in the clinic and you're kind of trying to, figure out if these patients are quote-unquote symptomatic uh, what are the types of things that you're looking for on presentation so I, I guess the first thing honestly as, as you've already touched on is just are they symptomatic at all um, and, and and a large percentage are not and so but but as I try to work through that you know the classic features that I ask them about is do you have acid reflux disease um, do you have dysphagia, um, postprandial pain, weight loss, early satiety? Those would be, I think, the big hernia-specific symptoms that I would be looking for. And then, and often, as you know, I'm, often I'm trying sort of in my brain to make sure that I'm that their their symptomatology isn't perhaps from some other unrelated entity. You know, like is it is their gallbladder a problem or something like that, for example. How much do you care about other, you know, they talk about these extra pulmonary, I guess more more in the context of GERD, but, um, you, you know, even related to parasophageal hernias, how much do you, uh, you know, take weight the, the findings of, you know, someone who gets recurrent aspiration pneumonias and, uh, you know, sometimes it's actually very difficult, I think, to, to pin those uh, extra pulmonary symptoms on their uh, their parasophageal hernia. So how do you kind of suss that out? 
Yeah, that's tricky. So uh, there's, as you've alluded to, there's sort of two groups of patients that I'll be referring to in my brain is, is those patients with this, the small hernias or the sort of reflex presentation, and then the patients with the parasophageal hernias, and both of them can have overlap with these, this challenge that you're describing. So um, I do take the extra esophageal symptoms very seriously because you know, for example, aspiration and pneumonia can be life-threatening problems. And that would certainly push me um, towards more aggressive management for either of those those uh, sort of subtypes of hiatal hernias. Um, but as you know, reflux disease is, is a tricky sort of problem to wade through um, in, the, in the spectrum of functional disorders and determine, you know, is there dyspnea, is there cough, um, is that episode of pneumonia they had a few years ago, is that somehow related to this uh, hernia? And and conceptually in my brain, I, I usually have to try to understand how that's possible if they have, you know, a small size hernia, how could, how could that pathophysiology evolve? And I would work up those patients perhaps slightly differently than some of the ones with the floor gut symptoms. So I do want to come back to the workup um, of, of these patients because I think that's super important. But you know, let's say for the patient who either is quote unquote asymptomatic. I know, I know one of your colleagues, Dr. Gelfand, he always uh, says, well, in my experience, there's never really been a patient who has a parasophageal hernia, uh, like a, not, not a type one, but one of the, the other types that, that isn't symptomatic in some way. Uh, but, you know, it, it, I guess the, the, the questions are twofold. One is if, do you see patients who, you know, have a, a, even large parasophageal hernias that are asymptomatic? And the second is if you do have a patient who's quote unquote asymptomatic, um, do you, or let's say minimally symptomatic on a PPI, how do you approach that patient or do you still offer them surgery or how do you, how do you go about dealing with that? What I would say is, is I would agree that, that, um, a lot of the bigger ones, patients will have symptoms. Um, but having said that a lot of them will not, and, and, and I certainly don't push too hard if you, to, to elucidate that, but, um, so I guess to try to answer your question, if patients are, are living well, eating and drinking the foods that they like, um, and they're not particularly troubled by the presence of this hernia, then I don't really go much beyond that. I really don't work them up. Um, and I, I talk to them a bit about the significance of the hernia, the potential risks of the hernia, which, which maybe we'll get to it today. But I, I'm quite comfortable to counsel them that this is an incidental finding that that they just need to be aware of. Um, and I think that thinking has changed a lot in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, even when I was in my residency, the presence of a, of a giant or a large hernia itself was, was regarded as a potentially life-threatening problem at some point down the road. And so some surgeons advocated repairing virtually all of them. And, and I, I believe, and certainly in my practice, that has changed a lot. Um, the patient that's well controlled on a PPI probably doesn't need much of a workup or, or and certainly doesn't need an operation um, as a starting point. Uh, I think that's a, that sounds very reasonable to me and makes a lot of sense to me uh, in my own mind. Um, can we talk a little bit about the workup and what, what are the types of imaging um, or other types of studies that you'll do for these patients uh, preoperatively um, and, and, and just... I guess, what are the things that you're sort of thinking about um, in, in terms of your workup uh, that you're trying to rule in or rule out or make sure that's not part of the, the equation? 
Yeah, that that's a good question. I, I sort of in my brain try to get a better understanding of the anatomy of the hernia to characterize it, um, to get a sense of the function of the esophagus, um, and just to make sure there's no other pertinent associated problems. And so typically when I see them, they'll either have had done or I will order a contrast esophagram, both for anatomic and functional imaging. Uh, I do an upper endoscopy on, on virtually all of them. And if I'm contemplating surgery, I've evolved to doing CT scans on all of them, which certainly I don't think is universally done, but it just gives me um, a really nice sort of anatomic framework um, for what I'm dealing with. And so, so that's my workup for the sort of larger hernia that I'm, that I believe is symptomatic and, and, and I'm evaluating um, for the small hernias or the, the sliders or where reflux is a predominant issue. Um, I'm certainly much uh, more cautious in those scenarios and I would absolutely recommend esophageal manometry and 24 hour pH studies in those patients. Um, this isn't universally believed, but I don't find manometry and pH studies reliable or helpful in larger hernias at all. It's the anatomy of the hernia itself and the function uh, is distorted enough that I don't, I don't, I can't integrate that into my decision-making. Um, I always check their, their hemoglobin levels. Uh, as you know, a lot of these patients have an associated anemia, either from overt blood loss from Cameron ulcers or just this assumed microscopic blood loss, which is often associated with hernias. What are you looking for uh, anatomically? Can you talk a little bit about like what, what exactly are you looking for on the CT or the the contrast study and uh, how does that affect your decision making? So uh, for one, I want to see if they have a hernia at all. Um, two, I want to see how big it is because um, I, I, to see if they, if they in fact have a parasophageal hernia component, as you say. Um, and then I, I can also, from the CT scan, I can get a, sorry, from the contrast esophagram, I can get in a sense of if they have you know, normal esophageal emptying or any manifestations of physical holdup or obstruction at the GE junction. Um, or sometimes they can comment on profound reflux on the esophagram. And then on the CT scan, you get just really a beautiful picture when you look at the chronal films of how big is the diaphragmatic defect, you know, how much intra-abdominal fat is there, how much of the stomach is actually herniated because it's not always, to be honest, it's often underestimated. Um, and so the CT scan often, you know, I'll, I'll find myself a bit struck as to how big the hernia is. Um, and then it just helps me to sort of tailor my operative recommendation. Um, so those are the key things that I'm looking at on CT and, and the esophagram. So I do want to talk about a case that I actually saw when I was doing a locum um, uh, this year, and it gave me considerable heartache <laughs> and and uh, and stomach ache and all the all the aches possible because um, I thought I would have to do an emergency surgery. But um, I, I saw an 82 year old lady when I was on night uh, on call at night, and of course you know it was like midnight on a Friday, um, and so she presented with severe epigastric pain and vomiting after eating breakfast. She had no melina or hematochesia, and her past medical history was pretty significant. She had diabetes, chronic kidney disease from glomerul—I can never say that—glomerulonephritis, uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, um, and she had an X-ray and a CT scan, both of which were consistent with gastric volvulus. 
So, Dr. Sheeman, can you talk to us a little bit about what is a gastric volvulus, uh, maybe a little bit about the types, and, and how do you approach uh, this scenario? So, yeah, I'm not surprised that this caused you a bit of heartache. I find most of the emergency consults involving parasalvia hernias are challenging, just as a, as a to make you feel better. Um, and so, to answer your question, the terms again are super confusing, and so. Even still, when I hear the term gastric volvulus, um, I imagine in my brain the stomach flipped upon itself in a, some type of a dangerous way with the associated obstruction and potential vascular compromise, like you think of with a sigmoid or cecal volvulus, for example. And, and that doesn't quite translate to the stomach in the same way. Um, and so without a diaphragmatic hernia, the stomach almost never, not never, but almost never just spontaneously flips about on itself in a dangerous way, simply because it has so many anatomic attachments like the gastrohepatic ligament, the gastrocolic ligament, the short gastrics, like it's, it's fairly attached in multiple places. When that does occur, it's sort of so-called primary gastric lobulus, a, a, a super rare entity. So Really, the term gastric volvulus is almost always used in the context of a parasophageal hernia or a so-called secondary gastric volvulus. And as I alluded to earlier, as the diaphragmatic defect enlarges and as the stomach migrates caudally in the larger hernias, it almost has to have some folding. And so typically what happens is the fundus migrates in front of and above the GE junction into the mediastinum. Um, and, and it, so it de develops this sort of anterior twist. Um, and so in my brain, functionally, the words gastric volvulus and hernia are kind of one and the same thing for the larger hernias. Um, and so I, I, I think, as I cautioned earlier, they're, they're often kind of used interchangeably. Um, and then you can get yourself a bit confused if you try to classify the volvulus, you know, the, the traditional mesoenteral axial sort of volvulus with the antrum flipped up towards the G junction versus the organoaxial, which kind of flips around its long axis. I don't find these terms very accurate or meaningful or useful. Um, and, and I think of all the large hernias as having some element of a mix of these. Like, do you think of it, do you approach that patient differently depending on the way that it's twisted like this patient for sure did have a, a gastric outlet obstruction that I saw um, and she d definitely had a, a significant amount of pain so it wasn't just that it was an imaging finding um, does it does your approach to that patient change depending on the way that it looks on the CT scan like even apart from you know obviously if there's ischemia or necrosis of the wall on on the CT that's a that's a different story but anatomically does it make a, a difference to the way you approach that patient whether it's you know, mesoaxial or organoaxial? Yeah, I would say no, not, not really. Um, it, it's challenging. I would, I would say that perhaps I, I think one of the more important teaching points is, is patient comes in with some type of abdominal complaint and they have imaging which shows a large hernia. And I, and I think often their symptoms can be mistakenly attributed to the hernia. So different than the, the, the patient you just described, but, but I would caution people that, that often the hernia has been there for decades is likely the same as it was on the x-ray, you know, five or 10 years ago. 
uh, in these elderly patients, they often will have some previous imaging and, and the hernia is actually just a bit of a red herring. So that's just one, like, I guess, small teaching point. Um, but but more specifically to answer your question, I, I actually do exactly sort of what you were alluding to. And I, I try really hard when I'm looking at that CT scan to get a sense of, is there some element of strangulation or something acute which has happened here? So, so if you have not just the presence of the hernia so much, but if you have like fairly massive dilation of the stomach, as you said, you know, now you're thinking there's an obstruction and there's perhaps they're developing some element of a closed loop or, 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 you know, some part of this volvulus is different than, than this hernia has been in the past. Um, I do look very much to see if I can, if I can map out some of the vasculature and you get some of those radiographic features of perfusion or ischemia or, or absence of perfusion of the wall, you're looking for free air and some of those other more, more catastrophic findings. Um, so those, when I'm looking at a CT scan in that emergency setting, I'm, I'm trying to one, ask myself if this hernia is even relevant. And then two, is, is this stomach looking like it's now obstructed and or compromised? Practically speaking, Dr. Sheeman, what do you do with that patient in the emergency department? Um, you know, the, the textbooks will talk about dropping an NG in to try and decompress that and, and then checking an x-ray to get the, the NG below the diaphragm. But I'm, I'm curious as someone who, who deals with this all the time, what, what are your practical considerations for someone who comes in you look at the CT scan and, and you're convinced there there is an element in a, of an obstruction. What do you do next? Sure, I, I think the management is is really tailored around is this stomach in trouble? And so, as you said, I I usually you can kind of you know you kind of have that that clinical sense as a general surgeon. You know, is this patient sick and it, is this is this patient in trouble? And, and often they they're kind of borderline. Um, if they're overtly in shock with an acute abdomen, I think, as you know, that the answer is fairly the management's fairly self-evident. But 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 not to overlook that or, or wash over that. I I sort of try to adhere to my principles of sepsis management, such as food resuscitation, empiric antibiotics. I usually put them on an IV proton pump inhibitor because usually somewhere in the history there's a, a dark colored emesis or, or or something to suggest that. Um, and then, as you said, the critical intervention um, that trumps all else is that mesogastric tube or with the hopes that you can slide it down and decompress um, a portion of that now distended and, and potentially obstructed stomach. And so um, we, we will go to great lengths to get that mesogastric tube because it literally is the to is a total game changer. And so... Um, you know, it, it, it's fairly evident if it's worked or not, you know, the tube goes down and, and occasionally it, it can't be passed, but, but to, thankfully I'm grateful to say this most often it can be passed and you have this large release of, you know, dark colored sort of coffee ground fluid, often a liter or more um, patient feels better. And, and uh, certainly I, as the, as the caregiver have this big sigh of relief because now I have a completely less emergent problem on my hands probably um, so that's my i would say that's my initial management then if not yet done you know you get the good ct scan and then you kind of you kind of go from there and try to make sure that that although it may be perhaps you've been lucky and you got the, the stomach decompressed with the nasal gastric tube that they don't have signs of gastric compromise um, if that 
if that sort of life-saving needs a gas or tube is not possible to be placed, um, you don't give up there. That I, I would then sort of progress to an attempt at endoscopic placement of the nasogastric tube with a, a gastroscopy, which you can usually um, get a little bit of more uh, physical distension and and forward pressure and pop into that that closed loop component and then place the nasogastric tube, evacuate some of it with the with the NG tube. Sorry, with sorry with the gastroscope uh, and go from there. Obviously, as I said, but it's important to repeat: if the patients in big trouble if they're in shock, if they got an acute ab and they got evidence of radiographic perforation or, or, or gastric ischemia, then then you're not going to get off quite well, Thankfully soon. for me, uh, as you suggested, the, my patient did all right. The NG went in and um, I, I breathed a sigh of, of relief and um, and uh, unclenched my stomach. I'm curious what your time frame is then, let's say, when you have that patient who's been decompressed um what what is sort of your uh, management going forward? Are you, you know, completely letting them settle down for a, you know a couple of days or a week? Do you take them to the OR in a, in a couple of days? How do you approach the patient going forward after that? So I, um, when the nasogastric decompression is possible, which thankfully it is in the majority of people. Um, Obviously, the patients get admitted. They get observed very closely, particularly in that first 24 hours in case you've missed some ischemia or necrosis. Make sure they don't deteriorate. And then I very intentionally drag my feet for a bit, um, usually at least a week and sometimes closer to two weeks, just to correct some of that, that sort of metabolic surge to relieve some of that gastric inflammation or tissue compromise and edema and let things settle down. Um, I usually will put them on parental nutrition during that time. Um, and, and I say that because I think surgery in that very early period is, so for example, in the emergency cases, but even if, if in that first early period, um, it's quite a bit trickier. The stomach is harder to work with. Um, it's a bit thicker and boggier. It's a little bit harder to reduce. And I think it, I think it, makes the repair more challenging and complicates it a little bit. And so I intentionally avoid that altogether unless they're in trouble. Um, and then I actually, you know, in some rare cases in the extremely frail, high risk elderly patient or somebody severely demented in their nineties or, or some, some variation of that. And you, you legitimately worry about their ability to withstand a major operation. Um, occasionally we'll just, Rechallenge them in a couple of weeks with oral intake, um, with the sort of thought process that, well, you know, they've had this hernia for decades. Um, perhaps we'll get lucky and things will still flow through. For, uh, and, and, and occasionally it works. I would say, I, I can't give you a number, Amir, but I would say that's not always the case. But occasionally it is if you're desperate to do that. I, I do think a lot of those patients, quite honestly, have some element of chronic partial obstruction. They haven't been been doing well for a while but I, i've gotten away with that a couple of times but i would say the majority are going to need surgery during that admission for sure i think that segues really nicely to um, our uh the next sort of scenario that I want to talk about, which is how you approach um, this operation. So, um, 
you know, you've, you you have an elective parasophageal hernia repair. Can you walk us through in sort of 10 steps or less or, you know, in, 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 in broad 30,000 foot kind of way, uh, how you approach uh, that operation? So, I mean, as you know, there's a variety of operative approaches and I, and I do actually kind of think about the patient that you just described that gets admitted kind of emergently a little bit different than the, the patient I see in the clinic who's, who's let's say, minimum, sorry, less symptomatic. So as you know, there's a variety of ways to fix these either through abdominal repairs such as laparoscopy or laparotomy or thoracic approaches through a, a low left thoracotomy. And, um, you know, there's much discussion, opinion, and interest in the merits of these different approaches and, and a lot of strong feelings around what is best. And I can honestly say that I use all three approaches um, that I just described, depending on the clinical situation. And so I always get a bit anxious when people are, are 100% committed to one approach. Um, for the urgent or emergent repair, I would personally suggest an abdominal approach. Um, and I think if you if you do hiatal hernia repairs as part of your elective practice, uh, you could very well consider a laparoscopic approach with the understanding that, that often they just tend to be a little bit harder than the, than the purely elective operations. Um, if that seems daunting to you, or if you're in a more urgent situation, then, then an upper midline laparotomy is probably going to be the most versatile and user-friendly approach in this scenario. Um, but I, I could go, I could go on about the different merits of, of why I would choose a different approach. Um, but Regardless, really, the surgical principles or the tenets of the operation um, remain um, reduction of the hernia sac and its contents, mobilization and resection of the sac, curl closure, and then some type of abdominal fixation uh, of the stomach, either through a, some variation of a fundoplication or a gastropexy. And then often both of those, a fundoplication and some type of a gastropexy to surrounding tissues. Um, it's, you know, I, I, as you know, I've done these procedures with you as, as well as I've done them with Chad. And it's actually not any more complicated than that in a sense. Um, and, and I literally do those steps as I do the procedures. Um, and, and perhaps I could explain, you know, certain elements of that if you want. I would say that uh, transthoracic repairs um, can be a bit more anatomically disorienting if it's not something you do often. So I'd be, I'd be really nervous to suggest that to somebody who doesn't do this regularly. In fact, I would say that these are these are challenging enough that if you can convert this to a non-emergency, um, you could probably make a case that these should be done by people that do them regularly because they they just can be hard. They can be hard, and and. Uh, the anatomy can be distorted. The tissue planes can be challenging. And then, and as you know, um, the recurrence rates can be high. And so they're, they're fraught with challenges. Um, in, in terms of if you're going to take this on, like, so let, for example, if you had to take that patient of OR the other night that you described, um, you know, I would strongly recommend you put a headlight on, you get an, a fixed abdominal retractor in place. And, and, a, and a fairly skilled um, assistant to help you just with some of the tissue exposures. Um, that that would be kind of the general principles. Um, I, I am a bit curious, given your expertise with doing both approaches, when would you choose a transthoracic uh, approach versus 
an abdominal approach. And, and I have a whole bunch of questions, obviously, um, about uh, some, some details on, on how you do the, the operation. But, uh, but maybe we can just start there. Like, um, when would you choose a, a, through the chest or through the abdomen? So I think this is probably morphing into um, the slightly more controversial parts of this, this disease management. So in my personal opinion, I think you're on safe ground if you say, I'm going to do um, the complex recurrences uh, uh, through the left chest. I would say there's certainly a body of literature and there's a lot of people that have large series of doing redo hernias uh, laparoscopically or transabdominally, but but that's not a that's not a bad indication to do them through the chest, um, as they, they can be quite, I think, a bit more straightforward that way. Certainly, people that have had, as 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 I said, these often happen in elderly patients, and a lot of people will have, have had multiple abdominal previous operations. So if they've got a, you know, if you're if you're cautious about a hostile abdomen, the the, the left chest is a great approach. And then, for me, I find it nice for um the really massive hernias like i.e the entire stomach is in the chest uh and or the patients are quite obese and and not infrequently those two things together um i'm not sure that every person would agree with that but for those patients i use a left chest approach just for the the sheer quality of the exposure the dissection and the repair um I just think it's like particularly in the obese patient with the large, large hernia. Um, I, I just think that's a, a dramatically stronger repair, but I suspect not everybody would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to be a selfish here for for a bit given that um, I'm not a thoracic surgeon and uh, I'm not going to be one. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit on, on the laparoscopic sort of approach to this because I think uh, a lot of our audience uh, are general surgeons and, and uh, would be more used to that type of approach. So can you talk uh, maybe briefly about um, sort of how you have the position if you're going to do uh, this operation laparoscopically? And then I think the perennial question that always comes up here is what kind of wrap do you do? Are you doing a Nissen? Are you doing a door? Do you, do you, does it depend? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I would agree with, with the sentiment of your question is that I think um, the general surgeons that, that do take these on will obviously be more, I think, comfortable and facile with the abdominal approach and the laparoscopic approach specifically. I don't think that's particularly controversial. Um, so for me personally, when I do these laparoscopically, as I've already said or alluded to, I'm a bit selective about the approach I use. Um, I, I place them in, in sort of a modified Fowler position or arms outstretched. Uh, um, although you can very comfortably do these through a, some like a, a modified lithotomy position. Um, you know, I generally place four or five ports, uh, at very, you know, various spacings in the epigastrium, depending on your preferences. Um, and then I think, you know, laparoscopically, it, it's it's very very doable. You 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 have longitude. You know, you first reduce the stomach. You place longitudinal traction on the stomach, and in fact, you kind of uh, intentionally grasp that gastroepatic ligament, and, and, and often you actively try to efface that sac, and then you incise that delineation. Often, you get some clues around the anterior sort of orifice of the hiatus or along the right cruse, 
and then you intentionally get yourself into that sac space. Uh, and as you mobilize that and retract it into the abdomen, by definition, you're adding length, you're reducing the stomach, you're taking tension down, and you're sort of adhering to your principles. And so, so I would say that um, the instrumentation is isn't that critical. I use a Nathanson liver retractor, but that's you know, that's just because it's fairly easy. Um, and then in terms of to, to jump to your second part of your question about the wrap and stuff. So I guess before before you contemplate the wrap, um, you know you want to make sure that you you really intentionally mobilize the hiatus as much as you can. And thankfully, laparoscopically is very well suited to going quite high. Um, uh, I, I often will try to excise uh, a good portion of the sac just because it, it kind of just gets in the way, not because I think it's a critical part of the procedure, but just, it just kind of tidies up the repair. Um, you want to make sure that your, your both pillars, your diaphragm are nicely exposed. And, and, and once you kind of have that, you're, you're feeling good because I would say to getting to that point is the hardest part for me in an elective repair often just with the distortion of, of the anatomy um properly mobilizing and reducing and excising that sac is is for me the the challenging parts of the case once you're there i, I think things just sort of fall nicely into place so um you know you suture up the cura posteriorly with your interrupted sutures i, I use some um, Athabon sutures, but silks or, or some type of a non-absorbable suture is generally what I would recommend. Um, you try to reduce the size of that diaphragmatic defect. And then lastly, you kind of make your decision around the wrap. You want to, you know, one of the other principles that I, I should mention is, is you want to try to ensure that you've got sufficient mobilization so that therefore you have sufficient length of the esophagus. And Ideally, we'd avoid the whole shortness esophagus debate today, but you just want to make sure that there's not a ton of longitudinal traction of the esophagus into the chest, which, to be honest, is rarely the case when you've done a good mobilization. Um, and then the rapid question is, is super interesting. And so I honestly think that's actually changing as we speak. And so um, I don't think it would have been a stretch five, ten years ago to say, you know, you reduce them, you do a 360 degree Nissen fundification often over a bougie, um, and then you're done. Um, and I, more and more, I feel that people are changing that approach and, and are have converted that to some type of a partial fundification and or a, quite a deliberate sort of widespread gastropexy. And so my personal favorite at the moment is, is once I've got the diaphragm closed, I do a modified wrap, like which is a partial anterior door fundification, where you just kind of swing the anterior fundus up and you tack it both to the sort of lateral edges of the esophagus and the G junction. But perhaps in my brain, more important than that is, is you tack it multiple places to the diaphragm, almost like to pexy the defect or to pexy that whole space closed. Um, and and I, I've heard of, of several other sort of people that do this regularly modifying their approach and it it's attractive because you avoid the risks of the fundification the, uh, sorry of the missing fundification you avoid some of the concerns about esophageal obstruction dysphagia much less of an issue of a partial wrap and, and you also get this really nice kind of broad-based closure of the defect and the area rather than as you know amir when you do the nissen you kind of have this this knob of the fundification 
which it just almost seems like the perfect thing to migrate up through the hiatus. You know what I mean? And so I, I've made that transition and I, um, you know, some of our call, like some of our friends in Calgary have made that modification as well as, as, as I've talked to some people recently around the country that have made that change. I love the way that you describe that. There's so much of surgery, right? That you look and you feel and you touch it and if it makes you feel sort of warm and fuzzy, so to speak, it's, it's probably a pretty good solution. So I, I love it. Colin, I want to ask you about two specific things that I think carry controversy. When do you use mesh? When do you not use mesh? What's that literature look like? Number one and number two would be, uh, when do you place a, a G-tube or a fixation tube and when don't you? Oh man, you're going right to the tough stuff. So I would say um, my answer for the mesh question is actually very basic. I never, I virtually never use mesh. Um, but to elaborate on, I will go to great lengths to avoid the use of mesh up to and including a partial reduction of the hernia and fixation. Um, I have yet to use it for a parasophageal hernia repair. Um, other than then those that are um, some complex variations, such as you know multiple time redo or some post-traumatic diaphragmatic hernia, where you have, you know, if if you will, more um, tissue loss or or loss of laxity of tissues, and even then, I do almost anything to avoid placement of the mesh. I just regard it as a as a a super dangerous, potentially life-threatening curveball that you introduce to the situation. And I'm just alluding to, you know, delayed mesh erosion of the esophagus. And I've been involved in those cases and those are complete disasters. Um, and so, um, Chad, as you know, there's there's actually a huge body of literature around the use of mesh for hiatal hernias and parasophageal hernias. And, and I think it's fair to say, um, there was a huge enthusiasm for use of, of mesh and, and there's tons of interesting varieties, um, multiple RCTs using it. Um, and, and even still there's some, some real experts who advocate for it, but I, as I said, I've, I've never had to use it and I've never regretted not using it. Um, even if, as I say that, that meant a, some form of a, a partial reduction in fixation, which I, I must say is a pretty rare sort of, the compromise you have to accept. And then what, what do you feel in terms of, of G-tubes or other fixation tubes? So I think this has also evolved a bit as well. So I think the the thought of, a, of an additional principle of the case of, of gastropexy or gastric fixation, somewhat separate from the principle of the wrap itself, I think, is a, is a key and important step to try to minimize your risk of recurrence. And so, as you say, you know, historically, um, the G2 was, was considered that, that technique of abdominal fixation. I think I, and, and there's certainly practitioners who still use it for me personally, I, I don't use G tubes in hiatal hernia repairs. Um, but I do acknowledge the importance of abdominal fixation. And so, I try to avoid the morbidity and added complexity in the, in the home care of the G-tube by fixing the stomach as part of the repair, as, as I just alluded to, um, with multiple sutures of the stomach to either the curl posteriorly, as well as often quite deliberately and separately 
uh, to the anterior abdominal wall. And so, you know, the classic would be in a laparoscopic repair with placement of multiple anterior sutures from the, the reduced stomach to the anterior abdominal wall, typically with like the Carter Thompson suture passer or some, something like that. And I, I think that's actually fairly recent in the evolution. And, and I think, um, quite a few practitioners, I think have evolved to that, that addition. So I, I don't use the G tubes currently. Yeah, I think that's a superb answer. You know, Colin, we, we can't thank you enough. And I'll, I'll reiterate to our listeners that I, I've seen you do a couple of these. And um, your technique is is uh, superb and the results are, are eloquent. So I think we, we all listen very carefully to what you say. I, I was wondering that the very last thing before we let you go, if, if you could take us out in terms of post-operative care. So do you swallow study these patients? How does their diet progression happen? And how do you monitor them or do you have to monitor them radiologically or otherwise for recurrences? And thanks again. So, um, I, I, again, I sound like a broken record. I would say this has evolved in the last five to 10 years, kind of as, as I would humbly suggest we've, we've become a bit enlightened to challenging sort of traditional surgical dogma with, uh, with the gentle push that ERAS has made us all reconsider everything. And so I like, things in, in my other domains of surgery, I, I've moved towards more minimalism. And so as routine care, no, I don't do esophagrams. Uh, I never really have done them uh, for this operation. Um, if for some reason I was worried about um, an esophageal injury or a leak or some element of the repair I'm, that that made me worried, perhaps I would do it if I was cautious to feed them. But that I, I would say that's not really a typically a thing, unless perhaps you were doing an emergency where there was some concern of ischemia or something. Um, if there was an early in-hospital recurrence, which is thankfully rare, but often dread, a dreaded complication, a contrast study might help you sort out if that's what entity you were dealing with. Um, I typically keep them NPO for you know a day and then I, I slowly reintroduce oral intake. Uh, I don't use nasogastric tubes. Um, nothing special, but just, if you will, maybe less than, than we used to recently do for these. Um, and then in terms of your question about, about recurrence. And so that's a whole kind of topic unto itself. Um, if you look really closely and, and try hard to find recurrence for these, you're going to, you're going to find a lot of recurrences. Um, I generally think of recurrences as, as clinical entities more than radiographic entities in the sense that when people are doing well, um, aside from, you know, x-rays um, and, and follow-up as needed, I don't usually have a super complex long-term strategy for managing these patients. Um, so I, if they're, if they're unhappy, their symptoms aren't great, then uh, I'll assess them for recurrence. And I think by far the best test for that is a CT scan. Um, a lot of times, Chad, the question of recurrence is tricky. Like, the, do they have a little bit of a knuckle at the hiatus? And is that just post-operative? Is that the top part of your wrap? Like, you, you can drive yourself crazy trying to think about these. The, the real big recurrences where it's not at all subtle, thankfully, those are pretty rare. But um, they're not they're not that rare, unfortunately. Um, even the real proponents, the hardcore laparoscopic um, advocates, 
uh, would acknowledge that the recurrence rate is unfortunately quite high for the laparoscopic repair. And so that's why I've sort of evolved to doing it a bit more selectively. But um, that, that's my personal approach right now, Chad. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.